Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guest today, Oliver Strivis and Chandra Kurt. They're both here, but Oliver's around the desk. Uh, what's uh, caught your eye this morning? Catalonia. I'm, I'm watching closely. Um, I'm reading El País and seeing that the uh, independentist government broke down. Very good. We'll be heading to uh, hear what's happening in Barcelona, of course, uh, also from the pages out of the newsroom of Al Pais. We're also going to be heading to the Balkans to hear from our man there. I'm Guy Delaunay, Monocle's man in the Balkans, with news of a fiery fuel fiasco, Bosnia's polling protests, Croatia's supercar shenanigans, and a beetle named Novak. And we'll also be heading to Tokyo for a bit of good news from there. Hello, I'm Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief. I'll be talking about Japan finally opening up to tourism this week. Hooray for that. And we'll also be in Vienna to get the latest from the newspaper Die Presse. It's the 9th of October 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a very uh, autumnal, rather cloudy, rather damp Zurich this morning. Uh, but as uh, Emma Nelson just said, going into the program, it's very perky here uh, at Dufostras. I'm very happy to say, of course, uh, you heard from uh, Oliver Stribus at the top of the program. Uh, he's, of course, uh, with the University of Zurich here, also spending a little bit of time uh, down in Ticino these days at Franklin University. And also Chandra Kurt is here. She's back from the vineyards uh, of France and maybe beyond. Uh, very nice to see both of you. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, maybe, Chandra, let's uh, tell us about the tour. Where have you been? What have you seen? What have, of course, more, most importantly, what have you sampled? Well, well, um, it's, it's the most intense time of the year. You know, it's harvest time, so everybody is, is excited that finally they can take in the grapes. And last week I did a little bit of a tour of France. I was first in Burgundy, and no, first in Bordeaux, and then in Burgundy. So the, like the two contrast, but very important regions. And you can see, you know, people are relieved to bring the harvest in. This year was much better to, uh, than 21, which they had hail and and frost and everything. So they are happy to have a good quantity and 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 they could do a good harvest. Uh, but of course, so much attention was on extreme temperatures this year, of course, a lack of rain, uh, but still this uh, adds up to good news. As you said, because of course, we look back to summer of 2021, it was it was certainly damp, but it was very stormy. So of course, a lot of, yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of uh, vineyards were almost decimated in a way, but despite the weather? Yeah, you know, the, the grape is a very resist, resistant um, plant and, and the deeper the roots can go, the, 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 the longer she can be without water. So having not so much water this year made like there's less water in it, but more fruit and there's a more concentration. So 22 will be a very intense, um, complex vintage. Very good. Well, of course, uh, we'll be uh, doing Chandra's wine advisory for what is, yeah, probably kind of a reasonably sort of, you know, cozy Sunday across uh, most of Europe uh, as well. Uh, Oliver, of course, you were talking a little bit earlier about uh, Catalonia. We'll, we'll go there in a moment. But um, of course, you've been, uh, you know, back with classes uh, for uh, a few weeks. But just for uh, people who are not uh, familiar with the particular patch that you cover in university, uh, who are you educating? Well, now I'm educating in, in Zurich, uh, normal, well, political science students, but now I'm also educating in Lugano at Franklin University, mostly American students. It's a liberal arts college. And I must say, Tyler, I'm under cultural shock. These students are so, so polite and open-minded. I, I have to get used to that. As you say, you're saying this is a contrast because before we went on air, you said it's, it's probably largely, it's, it's over half of the students at Franklin down in Ticino are from uh, the US. So are you, are you, making a bit of a diplomatic incident here saying that they're, they're rather different than your students in Zurich? 
kind of, kind of. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a mass university somewhere in Western Europe. It's kind of different uh, expectations also from the students. They just come and expect you to deliver. And uh, at the small liberal arts college, it's, it's very different. You're much closer with the students. It's, uh, it's a very nice atmosphere. Really like it. So, of course, and, and we don't want to have a diplomatic incident on air, but of, oftentimes you do hear about the sort of great divide about education uh, in Switzerland, even at a, at a primary school level uh, in a city like Zurich or Geneva. Of course, uh, these are cities with the large expat communities. So you have the Swiss saying, look, at, don't drive your kids to school. Let the kids get on the tram. They shouldn't be pampered, etc." Of course, as soon as you hear U.S. liberal arts college, it's something very different. And, and of course, there's, there's a very hot debate, of course, all over the world, but certainly in Switzerland. And, and certainly in middle Europe about maybe, we, you know, ma many say they don't want the values of, of U.S. universities, the political correctness, or let's say the overreach of political correctness brought to campuses, etc. cetera. Uh, what, what are you seeing, uh, certainly, with a college sitting in Switzerland? Um, it's kind of true. I mean, we're, if you want, we're pampering the students quite a bit <laughs> down there in Lugano. It's special for me to have 20-year-old students and the expectations for you as a, as a professor are really that you would take care of them. And here you just assume they are all adults and they, they anyway do what they want to do. So it's really different. Um, none of them is really better than the other, I think. S certainly the, the students here are more, probably more independent, um, but they are less, I don't know, a bit less charming here in Zurich. Okay, very good. Well, uh, we'll we'll leave we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, also happy uh, to say as well, we are heading uh, to Tokyo and hopefully heading to Tokyo in more ways than one. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll uh, get into that in a moment. Uh, our Fiona Wilson, our bureau chief, is in uh, Tokyo. Good afternoon, Fiona. Hi, Tyler. Uh, so tell us, uh, as you, of course, teased on this, and we've been talking about this topic for over two years on the program, uh, that uh, Japan is finally opening. When we say, you know, of course, Japan has been open up to an extent for business. And, and I'm sure there's been, uh, of course, tourists have been able to sneak in under, under business passports uh, as, as well. But uh, yeah, 48 hours from now, uh, the country will be properly open in a way as normal, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you're, you're also right to say more um, faces have appeared. I think a lot of people have come in on business visas and student visas have really opened up now. So we are seeing uh, more people from overseas. But yeah, the big opening uh, on Tuesday, uh, you won't need to have all these tests on arrival, quarantining. You just need to have your proof of vaccination or a negative test and you can just come in. So it, it is, it's a massive change. Yeah. Fiona, we'll uh, spend a bit of time maybe discussing what the face of this new type of travel will look like, but any sort of sense of also a bit of a, a brush up, I mean, of course, restaurants and retail, and I think that was the surprising thing about being in Japan when I was there in May, was that, and, and this has obviously been a topic we've been discussing for, for some time, that things have been sort of, you know, quite normal despite borders being closed, that Japan has sort of has, has, has functioned. Uh, and I think you, I think I even surprised you to say that some of the, uh, the places of the night that we like to go you know, never closed, uh, you know, even though there was a recommendation to do so, they didn't want to disappoint their clients uh, in uh, from Ginza and, and beyond. But do you have a sense that, um, that there's the, yeah, maybe the country's even polishing itself up even more, uh, knowing how important tourism is? 
Yeah, I think there's a sense of sort of gearing up to, you know, the arrival of tourists. You're right, things carried on. You didn't have this very draconian lockdown you saw in other countries. Um, the difference is, I suppose, everyone's still wearing masks um, and you still see quite a lot of plastic. If you're going into restaurants, there's still quite a lot of plastic around. I think that will slowly disappear. Um, I mean, there are things you're noticing, like hotels that opened during the pandemic. Maybe they opened, but they didn't open their restaurants. Those restaurants are now finally opening. So I think the hospitality industry is uh, is really excited about the opening. Yeah, and, and definitely, you know, I think when tourists arrive, they're certainly going to be uh, enjoying the weaker yen. So um, I think there'll be a lot of spending, which is what Prime Minister Kishida is actually hoping for. So, um, yeah, that will be a big difference for people. I mean, Japan is suddenly a, a, a bargain destination. And, and what is the... Uh the sentiment uh, may be on, on the other side of things, because, of course, there has been this nervousness. There, of course, there has been a discussion around yeah, Japan has maybe enjoyed this period uh, where it's not been overrun by tourism, because, of course, we look at the run up to what happened in 2019. There was you know, astronomical numbers in numbers that Japan had never seen in, in terms of tourism, certainly following a following a policy uh, that it that it wanted to pursue. The government delivered on those uh, numbers but of course you know we, we know and we even know many people in in various sectors you know who are not happy with it and i'm wondering if do you see a, a side of japanese society that's that is you know still saying or is there is there yeah maybe sort of a sentiment where people are saying this is happening too soon uh let's calm it down a little bit or is everyone ready to get going I think people are ready to get going. But at the same time, definitely, you know, I mean, Japan's been closed for nearly three years. So, you know, people have got used to this much quieter Japan. And I think before COVID, you know, Shinzo Abe had pushed um, inbound tourism absolutely relentlessly. It was seen as this really key growth driver for the for the economy. And it really was. I mean, you know, when you look at the numbers, the, the expenditure was phenomenal. I mean, it was I, I looked, you know, 2019, it was like $35 billion inbound tourism. But the numbers were pretty excessive for a lot of people. I just think the acceleration was so fast that people were a bit shocked by suddenly having, you know, people, you know, all their favorite places, Kyoto, bits of Tokyo, absolutely rammed with, with tourists. And yeah, I think there's certainly been a sense of people saying, wow, it's quite nice to see Kyoto back to the way it was. A little bit of sadness about that. And actually, funnily enough, so many people I know have, have in the last few weeks been rushing off to, to Kyoto to enjoy these uh, sort of few quiet weeks um, before tourism opens up. But I think, you know, in terms of the economy, Kishida, the prime minister, was talking about that, uh, you know, just a few days ago about the fact that he's he's banking on inbound tourism as a big, uh, you know, boost for the economy, much needed. So, you know, it's 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 a sort of balance, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Fiona, just uh, we're coming up to quarter past the hour. Uh, and if it's on a Sunday morning, uh, like it is here in Zurich, as I said, it's very autumnal. It means it's time to uh, to hand over to, to Chandra. But before we do that, we'll go to Emma uh, in, in London. Uh, Emma, you know how the, the rule, you know, the rules of the game. Uh, you know how you certainly know how it works. You certainly know how to consume the winnings. Um, I'm not sure there's, there's actually there's no winning, winners or losers when we play this game with, with Chandra Kurt. Um, but Emma, take it away because you know how to do it. Oh, damned with faint praise. Thank you, Tyler. Um, Chandra, it's really simple this morning. Good morning to you, by Good the way. Good morning, It's lovely Emma. to hear your voice. Um, Very. So this morning, the Nelson household woke up to the smell of chicken thigh, garlic, onion, mushrooms, tomato, and tarragon. I did a oh slow cooker overnight because that's the direction that the weather is heading. What do I drink with it? Really simple today. 
Okay, okay. Let's, okay, let's you've, find you, something you, simple. Something yeah. simple. Okay, Fiona, over in uh, in, uh, in in Tokyo. I'm not sure what the weather is like, but uh, what, what's going to happen in the uh, the Wilson household this evening? You know, it's interesting. It is it is getting a bit autumnal here. Finally, we've had some crazy high temperatures, but now finally it's feeling autumnal. Now, um, this this uh, member of the household's feeling incredibly lazy tonight. So dinner is going to involve going for yakitori. So. Um, what do you involve? Uh, what do you think drinking for some uh, chicken skewers? So it's a chicken day. It's a chi- um, well, it's Sunday. Yeah. It's a chicken day, of, of, <laughs> of course. Okay, Oliver, you have to, you have to mix it up a bit. Maybe, uh, so I don't know what you're cooking this evening, but what kind of bottle are you looking for? What kind of bottle? Yeah. Oh, you ask me questions. Well, um, well, I guess now that I started in Ticino, I have to drink a Merlot of Ticino. You have to drink a Merlot, but okay. So, Chandra, you know the Merlots. Do you, do you know a vineyard that we can get to that you can recommend? Yeah, I, 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 I will think about it. And what do you think of cooking this evening? What's going to go with this? I think we have a stew tonight. We got just so, we got meat from a um, from a nice little farming farming place um, we got new meat so I always order large packages um, and since it's cold we have a nice stew okay with some smashed potatoes or so very good I like that they have smashed potatoes yeah, as well cozy. I know yeah. <laughs> okay so it's cozy day we'll be coming back listeners uh, at the end of the program uh, and of course Chandra will have her various uh, wine recommendations uh, let's get to the front pages what's happening in the world Oliver uh, you were talking about uh, of course uh, reading Al País uh, and obviously just uh, reporting what is coming out of uh, out of Catalonia at the moment. Yeah, so basically we can say it's the end of the independentist process, process how they call it in, in Catalonia, because one of the two independentist parties, large parties, um, went out of government. So there was a strong disagreement over strategy among the two coalition partners. Um, so now the more radical party, the party of Puigdemont, uh, went out of government. They want to be more rebellious, going more quickly for uh, successionism, while the Esquerra Republicana de Catalonia wants to, well, they cooperate more now with the central government and they, they've just realized that with half of the population in Catalonia against you, you're not going to... Um, yeah, to succeed from Spain quickly. Mm, and it's, it was fascinating. I was talking to a, a, an entrepreneur from, uh, from Barcelona, uh, now living, uh, well, not too far from where you're teaching on the other side of the border, uh, now living in, in Milan, but a you know, very established businessman um, from, from Barcelona. And just, there was a certain sadness of just saying, you know, this mass exodus uh, that happened, and you're talking thousands of headquarters uh, that left, uh, of course, Catalonia and and what that has meant. And we were talking about the decimation of, of grapes last season, but also the decimation of mm-hmm. of business and, and global confidence um, around it. Now, you said you were reading El País, of course, a, a paper which is uh, firmly based um, in, in Madrid uh, as well. <laughs> The, I guess sort of the, the business discussion around this and what has happened, was there any sort of sense and analysis about what this means in terms of, of the afterglow of all of this? Mm. I mean, the, so the export business of Catalonia was always, let's say, the sector, economic sector most against uh, independence. There's a beautiful study in the best uh, political science journal about this, by the way. Um, right, I mean, there's just huge deception everywhere i would say and and this is kind of dangerous it it creates a very uh, yeah so i mean what we are all asking ourselves 
what happens to the more radical parts of these movements? They must be feel extremely, extremely, yeah, deceptive. And and will they really radicalize? Do we see some something happening uh, like what we saw in the Basque country in the past? So might create even more instability and of course business people they hate instability and and they don't see an end to that i think mm. um, fiona i want to um maybe pick up on the topic of uh, of, of instability uh, etc but i think uh, you might actually already be out uh, looking for your yakitori uh, at the moment but we're, we're going to to bring you back in uh, just uh, on um, maybe another topic, which uh, is is certainly in the papers uh, at uh, at the moment, uh, you were sort of talking about a headline that sort of caught your attention, uh, Oliver, which was on these alpine tracks. You are certainly alone. Now, are we talking about the the cows coming down from the mountains, or what? What are we discussing here? Yeah, just uh, <laughs> I just read this hilarious headline. Now, on these alpine tracks, you are certainly alone. So the day after this headline, you would certainly not be alone anymore on these alpine tracks. If they, if you would ever be, have been alone on them. Um, yeah, it's fall. It's nice. Uh, it's beautiful now with the with the trees and everything. But you won't find a. a a lonely alpine track anymore in Switzerland. No, just because everyone is is racing, especially, I mean, even on a day like today. Well, I mean, the sun looked like it, it might make an appearance maybe by the time we, we get off uh, air. But that's also been a story, you know, as well. Of course, this rediscovering of, of, of the country that's happened over the last two years that people realize they don't even have to go to Sudtirol necessarily. They don't have to venture further afield. Uh, that, that, of course, uh, it's pretty much sitting on your, on your doorstep right now. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> what should I say? <laughs> just, uh, just uh, when you look at, uh, and I, I just want to go actually where you're, of course, now teaching uh, in in Ticino um, uh, as well. Do you do you sort of do you get a sense uh, that I guess from a Swiss perspective that uh, are, are people almost like more regional? Their geography has has shrunk because on the other side we can say we can see a very busy airport uh, and the bounce back has been extraordinary and of course we're in the middle of school holidays right here uh, right now uh, certainly across most cantons and and the, and, and we know that uh, yeah, traffic has been kind of crazy but is do you think we sort of reached a new balance uh, potentially as well where people say and has maybe nothing to do with maybe the environment or nothing like that it's just understanding the beauty that uh, you have just around the corner I'm not so sure about this to be honest um, I think that's more it's more related to that flying is not so attractive at the moment um, so you might might not want to take the plane no you experience yourself how it looks at the airport these days so I, I don't really think it changed uh, it changed culture and behavior so much people are going everywhere as before I mm, think. indeed uh, Fiona's uh, back uh, in, in Tokyo Fiona I was just I was just curious when we were talking about uh, instability we we're coming off the back of this this, this uh, the, the Catalan story uh, it's it's been a bit of a turbulent week certainly if you've been looking uh, up towards the heavens uh, over, over Japan, uh, of course, your neighbors, uh, yeah, on uh, certainly to uh, your west uh, in uh, in North Korea, have been busy with their launch buttons, uh, doing various tests. What what is the uh, the mood been? Because we've we've heard certainly that there's also been uh, quite large naval drills uh, around Japan with the Japanese uh, Navy and also with the with the American Navy as well. So you've got this in contrast uh, at a time, of course, when the country is wanting to open up as well. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been very lively. Uh, Kim Jong-un has uh, been making his presence felt in Japan. Yeah, in fact, we had two more missiles last night, um, overnight, uh, 
you know, we woke up to find another two missiles had been lobbed in Japan's direction. They landed in the Sea of Japan. They didn't go nearly as far as the, the one last week, which uh, went over Japan. Yeah, I think there's absolute fury here. And you're right. The sort of reaction was, yes, immediately you've got naval drills with the, you know, the USS Ronald Reagan, which is this amazing nuclear powered uh, uh, ship that heads out and you know it it is quite something to see it's a sort of moving building um it's it was moved sort of east of the korean peninsula and then there were there were you know joint drills with south korea and japan which of course served to uh you know infuriate kim jong-un so it becomes this sort of spiral but um yeah i mean it's an incredible year for tests for i mean they've now done i think 40 40 missiles have been uh launched from north korea this year which is which is a you know by any measure is a is a big year for them and of course, Japan has a famous bureaucracy. So on 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 one hand, uh, some things can certainly change in terms of uh, who's the foreign minister or or the defense minister or certainly the PM of the day. But the bureaucracy is uh, is pretty solid and stable. But what does that mean in terms of rhetoric right now, uh, Fiona? And and yeah, I would say maybe the words are never fiery out of Japan. Certainly not uh, more measured, but uh, occasionally with some punch. Uh, so from of course uh, out of the cabinet office. Kishida and certainly on the side of of the foreign minister. Uh, what's the tempo been like uh, in, in terms of comment uh, and and certainly a, a, a position for Japan and, and Japan's allies? Yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, they, they did have very strong words. There's a limit to what they can actually do. You know, there were strong words from Japan, strong words from South Korea, strong words from the, uh, the White House. And I think what Japan has been trying to do um, is say that, you know, North Korea hurling these missiles, particularly the one that went four and a half thousand kilometers. This is a problem for everyone. It's not simply a problem for Japan. It's a particular problem for Japan because it's so close. But I think Japan is very keen to stress that it's everyone else's problem too. What are we going to do about it? And I think the reality is uh, not very much. It's very, very difficult. What is the world going to do? Uh, And everyone's saying, oh, China can solve this problem. Quite difficult for China as well. I think North Korea is a bit of a nuisance for them as well. So it's a very, very tricky situation. And yeah, very strong words, um, you know, but it it actually honestly makes no difference. Kim Jong-un doesn't care about UN resolutions. And, and everyone's now saying we can expect the, the seventh nuclear test to come out, which will be, you know, another big event. And they think that may that may be imminent. So, you know, <laughs> whatever anyone says, you bring out the uh, these amazing uh, bits of equipment from uh, America, it doesn't seem to make any difference. And, you know, I think you had the this statement from the Korean Central News Agency. And, and you know, they, they put out Kim Jong-un's position, which is not unreasonable. He said, these missile tests are about self-defense. And, you know, the action of a big joint drill around North Korea rather proves his point that they have got something to worry about. Just let's um, maybe spend a moment on on China. So before the lockdown, uh, China, not quite out of nowhere, but was such an important uh, tourism partner, uh, you could say up to a point, maybe not all Japanese would, would, would agree with the word partnership, uh, but certainly the presence of China was was felt, just the sheer number of flights, the amount of, of course, people just consuming, uh, not just in Cho- Tokyo, mm-hmm. but uh, but all over Japan. That's not going to happen uh, from from Tuesday, uh, because and, and maybe some Chinese, uh, you know, uh, who, who have a special uh, exit pass uh, and can get out in the world, uh, you know, will will be in Japan. But we're not going to witness what we saw, as you said, uh, three years ago. Do you have a sense, Fiona, where the government is, uh, and certainly Jap- Japan tourism, uh, is looking for new inbound uh, tourists? Is it a focus on 
Southeast Asia? Are they looking to the U.S., looking to Europe? Uh, is, is there a concerted campaign around this? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And when you look at the numbers, I mean, China was so important. It was, you know, a third of that huge number, 32 million, had come from Hong Kong and China. And, and nearly half of that incredible expenditure by tourists came from China. So it is really, really important. And that loss is obviously going to, you know, limit the success of inbound tourism as a, as a, as a sort of driver for the economy. But no, I mean, Fumio Kishida has been talking about trying to encourage, you know, uh, tourists who spend more money, but this is the sort of holy grail of tourism. Everyone's, everyone's looking for fewer tourists who spend more money, and that is a little bit tricky. Yeah, so that's, they're trying to emphasise the uh, luxury tourism angle, but also the regional tourism. They want people to go all over Japan, and statistically, of course, most people end up going to Tokyo, Kyoto to a certain extent, and Osaka. It's really like these these big magnet. So they want to, you know, encourage uh, regional tourism and many good reasons to go out. You know, I think for many people who come here, they'd love to go to uh, more places. It's just a question of time and, and also access. How do they find all these interesting places in the countryside? But yeah, there is now they are now talking about, yeah, we want these these sort of fewer tourists, maybe. But but let's let's see them spending more money. And I have to ask as well, because just given that uh, well, given that we were, as we said, we're 48 hours away from everything reopening, and, and we've had many, many readers, of course, who've been heading to Japan since you were able to get a business visa. How busy has uh, Fiona Wilson and, and Jun Toyofuku's uh, inboxes been with people looking for special tips? I mean, I can't even tell you. I am basically um, a concierge, you... <laughs> you know, monocle correspondent. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, next level concierge action at the moment. So many people saying they're coming here. Not necessarily right now. A lot of people are booking for they're looking at cherry blossom in the spring, uh, you know, and they're, yeah, they're absolutely. I, I mean, I, I've been hurling out tips left, right and centre. Um, and yeah, absolutely. People want to find these interesting places. They were, you know, and they want to know what's open, you know, and everything is open. There are certainly kind of limiting numbers in some places, but basically it, it's all open as usual. Very good. Well, Fiona, we'll be catching up with you a little bit later because, of course, the Chandra is busy uh, beside me here figuring out what you're going to drink uh, with that yakitori uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to be heading uh, to Vienna uh, in a moment. Uh, we'll also be heading uh, over to Slovenia to speak to our uh, Balkans correspondent. Is just coming up to the bottom of the hour here in Zurich. Same in London as well. Emma Nelson's there with the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Russian divers will examine the extent of damage caused to the only bridge linking Russia to occupied Crimea after an explosion badly damage the bridge that is a prestigious symbol of Moscow's annexation of the peninsula. North Korea has fired two ballistic missiles, marking the seventh such launch by Pyongyang in recent days. Japanese authorities said the missiles covered a range of 350 kilometres. Austrians head to the polls today to vote in a presidential election, likely to see the incumbent Alexander van der Bellen stay in office. Her van der Bellen is seen as a stable leader, but he warned that the biggest competitor on Sunday will be the sofa. And the president of Uganda has apologised after his son posted on social media that he wanted to give 100 cows to win the hand of Italy's Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney. However, this apparent declaration of affection was followed by what appeared to be a threat. He said, if the Romans reject our cows, that means we must capture Rome. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. So what do you do with that? Uh... 
<laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. Where did you find that news snippet? I, 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 that did, I mean, I look at about sort of, you know, seven or eight major outlets in the morning. I missed I, that one. I checked my tech. You wouldn't believe my sources. <laughs> I, was gonna, I, was, I, was go, I was going to say, uh, um, Emma. We, <laughs> it's Politico. Okay, it was in Politico. Okay, very, Politico. very good. So it's, it's, it's bona fide for once. I, I want to canvas everyone's opinion. So just uh, while we have you, Emma, uh, when you listen to uh, to Fiona, you just you were actually you were recently in Southeast Asia. You were you were in in Bali recently. So I was. so just just back as well. Also uh, in a forum which is very much focused on uh, on tourism, international trade, well, international uh, certainly a business of of getting bums on seats and around the world. Uh, what was what was the feeling uh, there? If you can if you can say well, the feeling was. Well, there was a couple of things that you noticed on the ground and then a couple of things that the ministers were always saying. I was, in a, I was talking to a group of, of, of internet, of tourism ministers, asking them how they were rethinking tourism. Different priorities for different regions. The universal need was that they needed to fill the 160 million hospitality vacancies that they've got. And they've got to try to make hospitality a, um, a, a profession that you want to not only join, but that you want to stay into because it had a real reputational hit when, mm. when the pandemic happened. That was a big problem for them. Um, another thing was, well, what surprised me was the amount of interest that was being showed to the Middle East. So the big news coming out of the, the UNWTO, the United Nations World Tourism Office, is that they have just opened an office in Riyadh. And Saudi Arabia wants to get a slice of the action, and Bahrain well, because wants Saudi to get Arabia, a slice of the action. Because Saudi Arabia, of course, is going to be hosting the Junior uh, Winter Olympics, as, as we as we know. So why wouldn't you want to have an office in Riyadh? <laughs> exactly, it's absolutely bananas. <laughs> because, but they made the point that they've been doing religious tourism for a very, very, very long time. They're just opening it up to um, to leisure tourism, and it sort of it was a bit of a head scratcher, really, because you just thought, goodness me, that's a that's a very, very um, that's soft power at its absolute mo- at its most strategic um, but just wandering around Bali everybody had masks on and mm. you just suddenly thought oh my goodness we're still doing this and you didn't know when and you're you talking about in, in the great outdoors no inside hotels Okay, so yeah. not not outdoors. Not outdoors. We were still going, we were still putting our masks on and still being advised to keep our masks on when we were wandering around the hotel, which utterly baffles the majority of the of the tourists. What was also nice is that there were a lot of Australian tourists because they've been shut down for a very 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 long time. So it was a delight to see that Australia was back out and travelling again as well. Oh, good. So you're trying to get a spike in our listenership um, in, in in Melbourne and Sydney right now. Always. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just I want focused. just we're gonna we're gonna be speaking to to Reiner Nova and we'll we'll catch up with you before the end of the program. Okay. I'm not sure uh, how how long haul uh, you've been of of late. Of course, hearing about Japan. Uh, if uh, if we could give you a ticket to fly super long haul right now, uh, where do you want to go? Yeah, Japan would be great. I just don't want to take my kids with me. If I go to Why, Japan. Why, is it expensive or just you just no, want to do it on your own? I want to do it on my own. I, I love Japanese food, so I would want to go for dinner, you know, having my time, enjoying it, and not just running around the table and show my kids how to eat with chopsticks. I, I think this is a very, a very wise move. Chandra, if we could, I mean, I know you'd like to go to Los Angeles, but... Just give me the longest long haul you can give me. <laughs> <laughs> I need to fly long haul and to sit and to be in this in this space up there. So you'd be New Zealand, happy. then? Yeah, you'd be happy with Japan. You'd be happy with Japan as well, right? Yeah, Japan is good for me. Yeah. Okay. Good. And I, I was going to say as well for uh, for our listeners, I think some uh, many uh, have certainly signed up because we're having a, a, a special uh, evening. We're having a special. Uh, we're calling it a Japasta evening, Japanese pasta evening, which is going to be happening uh, Friday and Saturday here uh, at uh, Dufostrasse. Chef coming over from Hokkaido. The studio space that we're all looking at right now will be 
transformed into a small restaurant as well. So we need to talk about wine tips for that uh, as well, uh, Chandra. I'm happy to say that, uh, of course, on this election day uh, in Austria, uh, we're heading uh, now to speak to the editor-in-chief of Die Presse, uh, Reiner Novak. Uh, not in the heart of the action, though. I said earlier that we're going to be going to Vienna, but I believe we're actually, Reiner, we're catching up with you in uh, in Apulia. Are there, is there a breaking news story or is there an election angle there as well? <laughs> It's just a weekend. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I already voted for sure, but um, now I'm in the south of Monopoly. It's in the Masseria Oremaitza Hotel, and it's very nice, and it's sunny, and it's, you know, this romantic, low-season sadness <laughs> all over here. Okay. Well, listen. Uh, I, I'm sure. I'm sure you're enjoying it. It's fantastic that you're still uh, chasing summer. But uh, let's get back to the political matters uh, at yeah. at hand. Um, and and of course, uh, it's the election. Of course, uh, for for your president. Now, oftentimes uh, we hear we think about a presidential election. In some senses, very important. Uh, of course, what it means uh, for for the nation and the national brand, etc. Uh, but maybe just give our listeners a bit of a of a primer. How important is is the presidency? Uh, versus uh, the chancellorship uh, when we look at uh, Austria? Well, it became important. It, uh, we, it, was, it wasn't so important when I was a child because um, uh, we had really, really uh, some scandals going on in Austria. You maybe remember the Ibiza video with Hartzi Strache and all the stuff. And um, yeah, um, government who had time. So um, the president got much more important and it's like, like in Italy, like Mr. Mattarella, um, Sander Bellen is sort of, sort of, um, yeah, all the statesmen who's, who's stable and, and, and people can trust. And, and of course, we, we have a general idea of how, how it's going to, to go and what, the, what this means. Maybe just taking a step back from it, of course, if we look, and we've been talking a little bit, it feels a bit of a, a, a kind of a reflection over the last uh, certainly two years uh, or even three years talking to our Fiona Wilson in Japan. A lot of that, of course, uh, sentiment may be governed by, of course, uh, you know where where we've been, the policies that governments have taken during the COVID period. Uh, we know that you know Austria had a bit of a roller coaster as well. On sometimes uh, you know seeming reasonably open, uh, sometimes quite strict uh, as well. The mood in Austria, uh, the feeling right now, the confidence uh, when you look out as an editor in chief of a newspaper. How do your fellow Austrians feel, Reiner? Well, I don't think that we have a good atmosphere right now going on. But it's often because um, after the crisis, before the crisis. So when we look at the energy problem, when we look about um, about prices um, um, for electricity and gas, that's that's the real new problem for Austria. When we look at about inflation, so people are really frustrated. I think if that it will just have been the, the pandemic problem and just the just the, the crisis of over the last two years or the last three years with all the lockdowns and and, and discussing the Swedish or the Austrian way, but right now it's the, the, the new economy really crisis and problem um, confronting uh, us right now. Yeah, that's that's and the, the thing is, Van der Bellen, I mean, he can't do anything, he can't decide anything, but um, it's I think it's important to have someone there. Um, explaining and somehow moderating, um, um, and so 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 yeah. It's just a, it's more a question of right communication mm. right now. I, I, and just I guess there there obviously has to be a little bit of a of a good mood feeling though uh, as well because there's going to be a Nobel Prize uh, heading Austria's direction uh, anyway. Yeah, it's well, it's it's, a, it's a similar to 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 literature in the United States, um, uh, everyone waited, waited for this, this Nobel Prize for Anton Zeidinger, 
I think I'm failing himself as well. Um, I, I'm not that good in quantum teleportation. Um, I'm not an expert in, in those topics, but um, I think he's well deserved. And um, he, he's a he's a very 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 um, nice character because he's not 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 a proud proud guy. He's very um, communicative and very um, yeah. You can you can watch him uh, walking through the first district to, to his office. And say hello to him. So it's it's uh, somehow some Scandinavian guy, you know. Mm, ab- absolutely. Well, it'll be interesting. Well, and, and congratulations, of course, to him and uh, yeah, and, and to Austria uh, certainly by by association uh, for getting this Nobel uh, Prize Prize in Physics. Just before we go, because uh, we want to get back to, uh, of course, your lunchtime uh, wine, uh, which will be Mom. coming up soon uh, down in uh, in <laughs> in Puglia. Uh, but just uh, the, the role of Vienna um, at the moment. I mean, and and of course, uh, we've just seen, of course, a major summit in in Prague. Uh, and of course, uh, when we look at Vienna, Vienna, of course, is a UN city, has been a city of, of diplomacy um, as well. Does does the foreign ministry and, and and certainly the government sort of look around and sort of also wonder where its role is? Certainly at a time of, of mediation, uh, given mm. everything that's happening in in Ukraine, and also you know, in many ways, you look at the map. I mean, Vienna be- finds itself almost in the middle of of a new Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are different 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 roads and different problems you you you, you spoke about. You, you should have mentioned that we also <laughs> the city of spies um, in Europe. The city of spies uh, as well. Going yes. on, yeah. Uh, for example, the the, Rus- the Russians are really um, very active in Vienna. So um, I think there's one role in Austria to do some some peace talks with between the United States and 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 for example Iran. That's that's quite an important role, and it works somehow. Um, the difference is between Russia and Ukraine, because as a member of the European Union, we end up having also uh, voted for sanctions against Russia. Um, I think we have no really diplomatic role um, between those two countries. Uh, that would be something of for Switzerland and 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 for another country, but not. And I think we we, we lost this role becoming a member of the European Union. Mm. So, so I don't think that that, w- and we have the problem that, that the Austrian politicians were too close to Vladimir Putin. Yeah, we had too, too, too close ties to to the Russian system, and um, in all parties, yeah, in the left and the right parties, there were really good connection with Putin, and he was visiting Austria quite a lot of time. He was skiing in Austria, so we have a real, real topic with this thing going on in our own role, and I think we have to. To, to, to look and analyze this within the next two or three years because it's not 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 really good 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 for us and was not good for our territory. Indeed, Reiner Novak, editor in chief of Die Presse, uh, normally in Vienna, joining us uh, from uh, Sunny Puglia uh, this morning. Uh, Oliver, you were nodding uh, your head uh, just uh, a moment, and, and of course, not just the role of Vienna, but the role of, of Austria, and and on one side, you know. Everyone welcome, uh, and and maybe also what that's meant for them uh, in the midst of where we sit right now as well. Yeah, I think the I mean, Van der Bellen will be elected with a a result that is common to authoritarian regimes, like so. Is a very clear sign that the Austrians they are sick of these adventures, especially of the right parties. Um, yeah, being so close to authoritarian leaders, especially to Russia. So it's a very clear sign by the voters that they want to belong to to the European Union, to the Western Hemisphere. And um, yes, 
being full members of the EU and not want to play some ambivalent position here somewhere in between. So I think it's, it's also a very clear sign by the voters, this election. Mm. And when you think of Brand Austria uh, and, and of course, the role that it has played uh, in, in recent history uh, in Europe um, and its position now, because it's obviously, yes, firmly uh, a member uh, of, of the EU, but of course was this buffer state for a long time and all of the benefits that went with it. Um, but is there a moment about really yeah, having to just firmly choose sides now? I think absolutely. So I mean, before they, so Kurz was also playing a lot with being close then to Orban and to uh, to the Polish government. And I think these times are over. They had to, they had to choose sides. Now it's clear which side the uh, Austrians want to belong to. Mm, indeed, uh, Chandra, I'm not going to pull you in on the political discussion, but I'm going to pull you in on the wine discussion as well. You've just finished France. Uh, is there where does the wine tour continue? It's very nice to hear about Puglia just now. Uh, do we find you heading to to Austria? Is it is it Italy? Are you you're following the sun as well? Well, I will taste Italy, but I taste it one time in London. I will be next week in London. There's a fantastic tasting, and then I go to Venice to go to the Veneto era to taste some Amarones. Mm. And just when you look at the regions and and i think it's sort of fascinating on one side looking at how of course countries are positioning themselves politically do you see a lot of jockeying um as well uh, on the part of wine regions as well the support that they might be getting from government at a yeah i mean at a at a sort of at a state level uh at, at, a, at a federal level to of course be supporting not just their agriculture but of course you know good wine is, uh, of course as we know has strong diplomatic effects as well well, we always have to be careful that, that we don't cross the border. But um, of course, uh, wine is always supported. In the EU supported a lot of, of, of wineries when they did constructions, you know, they helped them to rebuild. They also have a lot of architectural masterpieces. In Switzerland, we also get support. Some say it's too much, some say it's too little. So it, it is there. They're used to get support from, from the government. Mm. And uh, who would you say is pushing hard right now? Have you sort of thought like, okay, suddenly this was not a region which was so prominent uh, and suddenly you find yourself there more than you would have thought seven, ten years ago. Well, you, you can see that the, the Eastern countries, they did a lot. They did a lot of, of support, a lot of promotion. and um, But still, I think the most important regions, they, the, the classical, like France, Italy, Spain, Austria, Austria is amazing what, what they did. They had the crisis uh, in, in the 80s and, and they built up like a whole new industry. And I think Austrian wines you find now globally in all the good restaurants. So, so I think they did a fantastic job. Mm. And uh, speaking of wines from the East, uh, we're going to be heading to the Balkans uh, in a moment to speak to our guide, Delaney. Before that, though, it's uh, just uh, 10.45. Coming up to 10.46 here in Zurich, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We're going away for a short break, uh, but off to Slovenia after this. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has been a leading travel destination for so long that it's easy to assume it's a known quantity. Yet it's a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise. A place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Wherever you find yourself in Spain, you won't be far from an expression of the country's deep commitment to its culture. And it's never been easier to soak up its music, art, literature and traditions. In Spain, art is present at every turn and culture is taken seriously. Museums, galleries and cinemas are cherished parts of almost every town and city. Great sculptures prowl the streets and stand watch over the beaches. Vast museums house priceless works by Goya, Velázquez and El Greco. Alongside giants like Picasso, Nero and Dali, new artists are nurtured in galleries that serve their cities with cutting-edge contemporary art. And then 
there's the music. There's far more to Spain than castanets and flamenco. Spaniards know how to throw a party. Some of them last all summer. With a festival for almost any taste, just book your tickets and get stuck in. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. You're back with Monocle on Sunday uh, with me, Tyler Brule. As we said, just going into the break, uh, heading now points east uh, to speak to our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaney. I believe he's in Ljubljana this morning. Uh, good, good, good morning. Morning, Tyler. I am indeed in Ljubljana. I'm about to tackle Mount Krim on my bike. So that's what uh, lies in store for me after our chat. Okay, very good. And will uh, is, are there any vineyard stops uh, as well as, uh, as you pedal towards or up Mount Krim? There are not, but there is a little Gostilna at the top, which uh, takes cash only, but probably serves some uh, quite rough and ready local wine. But I was just uh, talking to my nephew, who's doing this ride with me, in, in favour of, of rough local wines in Slovenia. And the fact of, that, that having a, a glass of wine for a little more than a euro uh, in one of the little bars next to the market in Ljubljana is actually one of the pleasures of life. If you hit the, the right spot, there's nothing quite like a glass of uh, gluggable, cheap wine <laughs> on a Friday afternoon when uh, the week is winding up. I mean, very sometimes you know, the fine wines are all very well, sometimes, Tyler, but uh, occasionally a nice glass of the cheap stuff does the trick as well. Yeah, well, we'll see if Chandra has a view on that uh, in, in, in a moment. But uh, if we were looking at uh, any of the uh, the major dailies on a Sunday morning uh, in the region, uh, what's Kotra, what's making news, Guy? Well, the big news is the, the row between Serbia and Croatia. And this is all over Serbia's oil supply, uh, because as, as I'm sure a lot of people are aware, Serbia is still an ally of Russia and it's been receiving Russian oil all the while this year, despite uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it's been receiving oil through the Adriatic pipeline, which starts in Croatia and runs down uh, through to Serbia. And th this, of course, it raises a lot of eyebrows because Croatia is a European Union member state. The European Union has blocked imports of Russian oil, but it had allowed Serbia to carry on importing it through this pipeline for energy security regions, reasons. Now, Serbia is absolutely aghast that Croatia apparently has deliberately intervened to put an end to this exemption. So you've got uh, Prime Minister Anna Banovic calling, uh, saying uh, Croatia has uh, committed an open act of hostility towards Serbia, and President Aleksandr Vucic labelling Croatia not a reliable partner. Uh, so it's not a good weekend for neighbourly relations. Uh, but do you think this is a moment in time? Uh, and of course, we know that things, uh, you know, can get uh, a little um, fizzy uh, between mm. these these neighbours anyway. Uh, but this is something which just ratchets things in a, in yeah maybe in a familiar direction. Well, it was interesting that you were just talking about which choices and, and which side that the, the countries want to be on. When we were talking about Austria, what's their direction of travel? And this is the eternal question with Serbia, especially, you know, in the decades since it started EU membership negotiations. Is it going to definitively move west or is it going to go back east? Uh, at the moment, 
it, it's trying to maintain this knife edge balancing act really of having a foot in each camp of being an ally of Russia while at the same time being deep into European Union accession negotiations and it's a very you know when you're walking on a knife edge it's quite uncomfortable really and this is one of those very uncomfortable moments and uh, the authorities in Croatia appear to have decided it's time to make Serbia suffer a bit uh, there's a quote from uh, the Prime Minister of Croatia Andrei Plenković saying that Serbia cannot talk about European perspective but not respect any sanctions against Russia uh, so they, they appear to have decided in Zagreb that if the rest of the European Union isn't going to put Serbia under heavy manners to impose uh, sanctions against Russia then it's going to turn the screw itself. Mm. I just want to bring in um, Oliver uh, on this uh, because uh, he, he's been nodding as well. Guy's talking about a knife edge, but uh, would you say, or what's your take? Or ha- has Belgrade made its decision? Well, I think Belgrade once again betted on the wrong, well, say on the wrong winner, no? They betted that Russia would win this war or, or get out of it in a strong position. Turns out that it's the other way around. So they are in a very odd situation. Mm. Um, and their strategy of remaining so close to Russia seems to backfire now. And you see that Croatia gets more... Well, I mean, the EU seems to manage somehow um, to survive the the oil embargo by Russia, and this brings uh, Croatia in a much stronger position relative to Serbia. This is why they can start start having these... uh, Yeah this strong position towards mm. Serbia. Um, Guy, you, you want to maybe t- uh, take us to, uh, to Bosnia, uh, of course, and uh, s- uh, some antics around, uh, around the uh, election there. Indeed, antics are certainly one way of putting it, because we had last weekend, this time last week, we had all the voters in Bosnia turning out. I say all the voters, the turnout was only just above 50%, but voters in Bosnia were turning out for these elections which cover um, national, national presidency, regional, local, the whole enchilada is, is covered in these elections. And uh, you won't be surprised to hear that the dust has not yet settled. Um, and the biggest row, uh, which I think we should point out, is the one which is going on in Republika Srpska, which which is the majority ethnic Serb region of Bosnia. Bosnia being divided more or less in two between Republika Srpska and the Federation, uh, the Federation being where most of the uh, uh, Bosniaks and ethnic Croats live. So the most powerful ethnic Serb politician, Milorad Dodik, has won the presidency of Republika Srpska. And his opponent, uh, Jelena Trivic, is crying foul. She had, she says, an overnight lead during the count last Sunday. And this lead suddenly evaporated come morning. And they've been pointing out uh, returns from polling stations where she was recorded as having zero votes, which she says is simply not credible. And uh, quite a few observers seem to agree with her as well. So we've had these mass protests at the end of the week. And more to come, they say. 65,000 votes stolen they reckon, and uh, they're calling for not just a recount, but a rerun of the election. Just uh, in the interest of time, uh, we, uh, we're going to have to, of course, do our, our wine wrap-up in a moment, but you've got two good stories for us. You can do both of you, do them very quickly. I mean, one is, of course, about uh, electric uh, hypercars uh, out of Croatia, and then we can, of course, head back, uh, of course, to, to Serbia to talk things uh, Djokovic-related. Can you do all of it in a minute? I will do this at uh, Rimac Nevera speed, Rimac Nevera being the, the hypercar from Croatia, of which Croatia is incredibly proud. Uh, not so proud a couple of days ago when a video was uploaded to YouTube by uh, somebody called Steve Hamilton, who seems to collect hypercars, uh, showing himself driving a Rimac Nevera on the public highway 
in Zagreb at speeds of 200 miles per hour. That's about 330 kilometers per hour. Um, sitting next to the Rimat's test driver at the time who appeared to give him the okay to put his foot on the accelerator pedal. Uh, of course, questions now being asked, do we like Rimat's so much in our country as a soft power icon that we're willing to tolerate this kind of behavior? Uh, meanwhile, Novak Djokovic, another icon, another soft power icon, this time in Serbia, has had a bit of a mixed year, to put it mildly. Uh, but he's got a win at the end of the season, Tyler, uh, which is that scientists have named a, a beetle in his honour. Uh, this beetle is called Duvalius Djokovici. It was discovered in a cave a couple of years ago, and it's been named after him due to its speed, strength, flexibility, durability, and ability to survive in a difficult environment. Excellent. And and all in one minute and five seconds. Guy Delaunay, uh, our man in the Balkans, uh, very good to speak to you uh, as ever. Ladies and gentlemen, it's come to that part of the programme uh, right now, of course, where we're going to get uh, our wine results. What should go on the table this evening? Chandra is standing by. Emma, will start with you. There's uh, Something's been in the oven. I believe it's chicken all night. The house <laughs> reeks of garlic and leeks and other things at this point. Uh, is that correct? Or maybe not. I don't think it's that bad. It's okay, all open right. The, open the windows, lady. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's quite, co- it's quite a cosy, welcoming smell. But yeah, we will open the windows just for everybody's sake. Okay, Chandra, what, what do we have for Emma? You know what is beautiful? Uh, my, my most, um, let's say, mem- beautiful memories of my grandmother was when I was there in Italy and I woke up in the morning and the whole house smelled of what she was cooking. And it made me always feel very safe. Um, because, you know, when there's food, we are good. So anyway, you have a, an intense chicken dish. And mm-hmm. I think you go for also wine that has some warmth, even if it's more cold right now. Let's take like a ripasso or a romarone. I will go for the ripasso style. It will warm you up immediately uh, from the family Masi, for example. So and it will uh, f- uh, go very well with the chicken. How does that sound? It, is it going to work for a, you? A glass of ripasso will probably have me asleep after 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. so, so, ripasso. Yeah. out. <laughs> ripasso. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we call it in our house, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Oliver. You, uh, Oliver, you, you were uh, you were interested in there's a stew, uh, of course, cooking, I believe, as well, or, or maybe it's going to go on the stove. And uh, you already said that you wanted something from Ticino, something red. Uh, what do you have for us? Uh, so Ticino, you know, it's it's amazing. It's ninety percent of all the grapes are Merlot, and they do white, red, rosé, all kind of reds. I will go for a safe one, uh, the Carato from the family Delea. You can have the reserva or the simple one. One is a little bit more aging in, in wood, in oak, and uh, it, the stew and, and Merlot will fit just perfectly. Nice. Does that can yeah. do the trick for you? Sounds good. Excellent. Uh, Fiona Wilson is uh, back with us uh, in uh, in Tokyo uh, as well. It's yakitori evening, uh, chicken Sunday, as we were saying uh, earlier. Uh, and anything else to go with that, Fiona? Uh, yeah, you know what? It'll be talk about simple. I'm gonna have a, a a big load of rice. I might throw a salad if I'm if I'm feeling creative. <laughs> God, it's really like it's really like feet up on slipper Sunday, isn't it over there? It's totally a hundred percent. Well, actually, it's health and sports day here tomorrow, so okay. I better go easy on whatever you're suggesting, Chandra. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, what are you thinking, Chandra? Okay. So you know, it's it's very an aromatic dish, so it's not always so simple. So, but I will go for a Riesling uh, from Germany, like from the house of, of Robert Weil in the Rheingau. A little bit sweetness in it. It will it will also give a good feeling. Some sugar is is needed these days. So so go with a with a, a little bit of dry Riesling. Can, do you think you can head to the wine uh, to the wine hall at uh, at Tokyo department store, and that will uh, they'll do the trick for you? Absolutely. I'll rush before closing. I could do with a glass of that. Thank you. 
Excellent. Uh, Fiona, we look forward to seeing you at the coming weeks. Emma, I should just also say that Chandra, you, you heard this, of course, Chandra's heading your way. So she's heading to London uh, for those wine tastings. So hopefully you're going to be able to catch up as well. I shall ask Chandra for, for what she wants me to cook for her as long as she brings me something to drink <laughs> together. I'm sure we'll have a bit of teamwork offline, Chandra. Good. Emma, you're back in about uh, 90 seconds with the news headlines. My thanks today to, uh, to Oliver uh, Strivis, Chandra Kurt, of course, uh, Emma Nelson as well, Fiona Wilson in Tokyo, Reiner Novak, not in Vienna, but uh, in Puglia today. And Guy Delaney was uh, joining us, of course, from Slovenia. Our producers, Desiree Bandley and uh, Emma Nelson, studio manager in Zurich was Desiree as well. And Callum McLean was looking after the audio in London. I'm Tyler Berlay. Monocle on Sunday is back at the very same time next week. Uh, enjoy your Sunday. Enjoy the wine. Goodbye.